You're now diving into the fish tank. Sitting down with Seth living, Seth. OJ, Juice, man, ooh, and this is strictly for them true fans, yeah. golf fans, number one, one, of course y'all, this ain't no ordinary sports talk, welcome back to the Fish Tank right here on the Miami Dolphins Podcast Network, Seth Levitt, DJ Preach, and of course my main man with the, well I would say the strongest hat game in town, but somebody <laughs> might argue with you on that one, OJ McDuffie, Juice, how we feeling today, man? Oh, big Seth, I'm great, man, how about yourself, man? Uh, everything is glorious. You know, when we put in the work, like years of work to get a guest and you finally <laughs> land that big fish, you know, yeah. it's, uh, it, it's meaningful. So yeah. very, yeah, very excited. got him on the boat, man. We got the big fish on the boat, bro. You know, a lot of is that a fat joke? Is that a fat joke? That better not be a fat joke. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. We wouldn't do that here in the fish tank. I'm not touching anybody getting them off the hook. I know you don't like that either, Juice. So we'll just have to take <laughs> things as they are. Dan Levitard dives into the tank today. Dan, how are you, my friend? Uh, I'm happy to be with you guys, admirers of both of your work over the years. So thank you for honoring me with the privilege of uh, being the uh, the big fat fish, the, the big mouthed <laughs> fish, the large mouth bass, uh, something between a large mouth bass and a whale that you've allowed to flop on the deck of your of your fish tank. We'll, we'll give you a lot of those things. I'm not saying fat. I don't think that's uh, yeah, we're not. There's no body shaming here in the tank yet. Maybe if we get you warmed up a little bit, but uh what I did wrestle with, though, Dan, is how we were going to start this thing. We kind of have built a cadence, as I imagine, you know, you have in your own work. We built a cadence over the last couple of years. Um, but I also feel like when Dan Levitard shows up to your place of business, you cannot do things the way you typically would do them. You know, that's just asking for trouble. So I'm going to borrow a page out of your book. And I'm just going to dive right into this moment that, you know, I, I could not wait to, to discuss and having both of you together. And it takes us back to 1998, which, holy shit, that was a long time ago. But 1998, you are, I see you smiling. You already know exactly where I'm going. But we're going to go into a visiting team locker room in Atlanta. The Dolphins were, I think we were 10 and 5, Juice, going into that game. But a, a pretty, pretty good team. But we ran into the Dirty Bird and all things that Atlanta, the Atlanta Falcons were that year. And they just beat the living shit out of us that day. Um, I, I think it was 38 to 16. I want to say Timbo walked off with an injury, maybe tore his tricep and JT broke his collarbone and, and we got beat up physically and emotionally. And Jimmy Johnson, I don't know if you know this part of it, Dan, but Jimmy Johnson lit this team up in the locker room. Probably the worst I had heard up to that point in my professional career juice. Uh, and, uh, and then, then that, that cool down period is over and the doors open, the media comes in, we're doing our thing. It's kind of quiet. We're trying to get through. And I just hear this commotion behind me, Juice. And it kind of sounds like you. And there's fuck this and fuck that and maybe a fuck you. And I turn around and you and Dan Levitard are like nose to nose. So I'm going to start with Dan. Dan, what, what are your memories of that moment? And then, you know, Juice, we got to hear what was going on. Well, I, I need to start with people understanding the profound admiration I have in that particular sport for the toughness and the professionalism of this human being. I can say now all these years later as a young man who 
may not have known everything that he thought he knew, that that's not what I thought I was walking into. <laughs> I don't remember the details specifically of why OJ was mad at me. I know he was really mad at me, and I knew he was not the one to be trifled with either. So when you say nose to nose, it makes me sound a hell of a lot braver uh, than I am. <laughs> I knew I knew to fear OJ McDuffie. People knew to fear OJ McDuffie, and his wrath was not a pleasant thing. And so I'm walking into a locker room. I didn't mean to step on any landmines, but again, the emotions yeah. of that particular <laughs> yeah. locker room where you're getting torched by your coach, you care the way OJ does. I don't know what I did, but I feel like all these years later, I must have deserved it. I, I don't know what details <laughs> that you remember, but I, I probably came in uh, critically or had written critical things and OJ probably didn't have time for it. No, I think Levy had a, he had, I mean, he wrote, he wrote really well. I think my problem was you came in and it was, there was laughter, you know, and there was not a time for, I was like, we were all, as Seth just said, man, Jimmy just laid us out, you know what I mean? And then you come in laughing. I was already in a bad mood. So it's probably more on me then than it was on you, but just the whole atmosphere was so bad at that point, man. And, you know, and I, this is so good that we get a chance to, to say this because I've carried this grudge for too long. You know what I mean? <laughs> Way too long. And, you know, I've actually had a chance. It's it's amazing to, you know, I, I found out a couple months ago that there was a guy that I went to high school with that was carrying a grudge against me ever since. That was 88. You know what I mean? And I had no idea. So I'm glad we get this opportunity, man, to nip this shit in the bud, man. And, you know, I, mean, <laughs> I am a fan of your work as well, man. And it's, it's really good to have you on. And, uh, yeah, it was a stupid OJ back then, crazy OJ, wild OJ, <laughs> competitive OJ that was just in a badass mood and it just carried on way too long. Well, but you were, you were in general a hissing radiator. You didn't get to where you were without having the fuel be whatever it was, defiant, bleep off. Uh, like, you can't be the kind of receiver that you were. Uh, you know, 100 catches a year over the middle, Dan Marino saying he's the toughest and he's the baddest. There's just no way... Look, you're a great athlete, but your physical body type would need even a little bit extra to do the things that you did. And I don't know what the coal in that furnace was, but I know it wasn't to be laughed about after Jimmy Johnson had torched you guys. <laughs> to be yeah. fair to me, I probably didn't know that that I was walking into a losing <laughs> locker room. Jimmy's fault. Yeah, it's Jimmy's I, fault. I probably didn't know that he had done that to you guys. So now he steps on your pride and I come, if I come in laughing, that's probably, you don't, you don't walk into the funeral or the wake and start laughing by the coffin. You do not do that. <laughs> right. And, and to give you guys some context, because as Juice says, I guess I'm usually the guy that has the details here. But I believe that that Juice and Lamar Thomas probably had their locker rooms close to each other. Right, right beside and, each other. Yep. Yeah. And, and so LT was like the one guy on the team that had a decent game. And he, if you recall, he made this ridiculous catch where the defensive back was interfering and in his face and he kind of caught the ball around him. And, uh, and Dan, I believe you and, and Lamar had a, a relationship dating back to college. You guys had a friendship. And so I think that you guys had. Oh, was I laughing with him? I was laughing with I him about, oh, and OJ, OJ didn't have any time for that. Yeah, right. I believe that's sense. what happened. And so then. OJ oh, I might have caught in the brunt. I might have accidentally <laughs> caught the uh, the the friendly fire that he was directing at Lamar. At Lamar, at Lamar like, what you? Why are you laughing? Like, are you kidding me? <laughs> yeah, and it was easier to chew your ass out than his yes. <laughs> I chew Lamar's ass out enough. You know what I mean? I still chew Lamar's ass out. <laughs>
but that's what happened. And then what I, so when I turned around and, you know, uh, Harvey was probably with the coach or with Dan at that point. Right. And then I see, you know, this, the, the rock star columnist from the Herald and, and our star receiver dealing with this. And Dan was trying to defuse it. And you're like, uh, uh, but OJ and, and you were trying well, to, I don't, I, I can tell you all these years later that I don't want those problems. Like right, that's right. not, that, that's, that is <laughs> not what that I was smoke, interested dude. in. No, 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 thanks. Yeah. You definitely didn't want that. Hey, smoke. I'm just, I'm a, I'm a fake tough guy though, Dan. You know what I mean? You probably whooped my ass in there, man. OJ, you went after Daryl Gardner. Get out of here, fake tough guy. Like, get out of that, here. That's craziness right there, though, right? <laughs> that, yes, that is not, that is not why. If it, never mind all the other stories. One of my favorite Daryl Gardner stories, you could probably speak to this, is that, that on the hotel rooms on the road, he made, uh, dolphin equipment people put the hundred pound and 120 pound dumbbells yeah. in the room, in room so that, yeah. so that he could do whatever it is he needed to do with the biggest of the weights. Yeah. Yeah. He definitely did all that, true. man. That's all he really cared about most of the time was lifting weights. <laughs> you know what I mean? And he got mad when other guys didn't oh, lift as much and were just as strong. That was, oh that my really God. pissed him off. Well, but if Daryl Gardner had the soul and the heart and whatever it is, the hissing radiator inside of OJ McDuffie, <laughs> that. that guy, that guy would have been Reggie White. That guy would have oh, been uh, exactly whatever right. the equivalent is, Aaron Donald, the defensive tackle, whatever it is, that, or Warren Sapp, something eternally great if he had that kind of engine. But he didn't. Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah. Wow, Big Seth, man. I, I mean, usually let us get warmed up, man. This is on fire <laughs> in here now. already, man. <laughs> before, before things get too crazy, you know. But, you know, if you don't mind, Dan, you know, you know, I, I really appreciate the fact that we got to get a chance to chop it up today, man, and pretty much squash this thing. And now everything's in perspective and the young, you know, hothead myself. And then I, now I really need to talk to Lamar again about, <laughs> about <laughs> what happened that day, man. But I'm going to change the mood here a little bit. When Coach Chula passed away, you wrote an amazing, an amazing tribute to him and what he meant, not just to the Dolphins or not just to sports or Miami, but to all of South Florida. Uh, but you also wrote about how, you know, you were impacted by coach and how his passion and your passion for sports was developed by watching his teams, you know, in the Orange Bowl as a kid. I read the article, man. The article was amazing about you talking about your dad and how he worked a lot. You got opportunities to, you know, to go to a couple of games and, you know, you might have been up, you know, way up in the, in the bleachers or staying somewhere. But that whole atmosphere itself, man, uh, when he would take you to games man, talk a little bit more about that, you know, because, you know, I love you know, for you to share some of those moments and that, that move you to the place where you are and how you dedicated your life to sports and, you know, and, and things like that many, many years later. You never know whether you choose the path or the path chooses you. My earliest childhood memories are my small hand in the big hand of my father taking me to the Orange Bowl. Terrible seats. We only got to see, you know, the Bills when they played the Bills who were terrible. O.J. Right. Simpson was on those teams, but they were terrible. And my father was, you know, a broke exile. And those were the tickets that nobody wanted at work when the Dolphins would play the Bills. And so we'd get the worst seats and he would take me there. But it's what made me start on the path to, well, this is a magical place. I've never seen or felt anything like this. I come from a, you know, small exiled childhood that had you know a, a house near the, where the stadium now is that I'm growing up in and that might as well have been Disney World the seeing the dolphin games in the yeah. orange bowl it's just not something imagine a child with no access to like far reaching things and then you enter this electric place you're with your father you're making a connection that I would later you know 
turn into content on television is the greatest blessing of my professional career, being able to age with my old man on television. And that bond started in that place with what Shula built in the center of our city to make Miami something that resonated nationally before Miami was ready to resonate nationally. And so what they built here over those 30 years, uh, you know, between 70 and, or yeah, 25 years, 30 years between 70 and 2000, it set me on the way to choose the life's work that I chose. That uh, was the only thing we had down here, OJ. Like there wasn't, like UM football didn't matter back then. The Heat didn't exist. Uh, the Marlins didn't exist. The Panthers didn't exist. What we had representing the region uh, was this football team led by everything that man built and everything he stood for, which was uncommon integrity, pillar of professionalism, just the kind of stuff that made them a hallmark organization because he was such a uh, a strong, principled man. And then many years later, you got a chance to cover him. <laughs> Talk about that. I mean, I mean, it started with that admiration of what he did for the city in South Florida, but then you got a chance to cover him. You know, that had to be uh, had to be pretty awesome as well. Well, it was, and I always was very respectful and admirable, but I lost him at the end because I did dare to write the column, hey, Jimmy Johnson's available, and they've just lost in San Diego, and he wants this job. And uh, this was the only time that I personally felt Don be small with me. It doesn't mean that he couldn't be capable of being small. It doesn't mean that he couldn't be capable of just being human. I'm, I know he didn't like that column. He was not used to anybody doing right. anything but right. genuflecting but he called me into his office and oh man yeah oh, no. <laughs> no no it's better you, than did that did you ever get called into his office <laughs> no once i had a, well you so know you and dan, dan have been called into don shula's office the same amount of times <laughs> yeah well dan remember you know, I, I got in trouble for a, a birthday party down the grove that i didn't know uh, anything yes. about yeah so yeah that that's another story <laughs> i'm sorry dan. no it's okay but i i'm guessing that i got uh treated more coldly in that office than you did because I come in and I extend my hand to say hello and he might as well be in a throne like his chair is bigger than everything else I thought that was purposeful like I thought that the chair <laughs> on the other side was purposely sort of embedded lower than he would be so that he can just sit over you and I come in and I put my hand across the table to shake his hand and he just stares at it. He, yeah. And he, and that's so all he's already intimidating, right? And I already know, I already know that I'm, I'm there to be punished or whatever it is. And so I'm standing there with my hand out and I just ask genuinely, I'm like, did you really just call me in here to do that to me? Wait, like you I said was, that. Like, yeah, you I did that? say it, but yes, because wow. I mean, come on, Seth, come on. Like, I mean, <laughs> like, I mean, I would, and it was genuine curiosity because I'm like, really? You're just going to leave my hand uh, hanging here? But yeah, he was that mad by, uh, about what I had written. And wow. You know, part of the job uh, welcomes some of that. Uh, I've gotten not exactly that, but Jimmy Johnson has called me at 730 in the morning when he's the Dolphin coach and I'm picking up the phone and he's yelling at me about something. And, you know, you've got to you, you got to as a columnist, I was never, never trying to be provocative just for the sake of provoking. But speaking truth to power is something that I've always tried to do and thought it's a part of the job and whether it's attacking 
racism in the NFL or anything else, speaking truth to power is important to me, even if it's going to leave my hand uh, hanging out there over a desk, uh, <laughs> feeling both uh, the shame and a little bit of regret. Wow. I because I was like, wrong. Literally, literally left him hanging, man. Left he, him he hanging. Le but but to, to his point, though, the Dolphins have never been as good as they were. They've never since been as good as they were uh, when they lost to San Diego, and I was writing that column. That's as yeah. deep as they've been in the postseason. Not all the coaches since that have been swallowed. Saban, Parcells, everybody, Jimmy, everybody after that. None of them did as well as Shula did. None of them that's had really Marino, hard. though, either. That's true. I mean, that's, ooh, that's another story right there man we it talk is about quarterbacks a lot for sure and so let's dig into that jimmy piece a little bit more and i know again you being a um guy and I, I i think i've read that your relationship with jimmy johnson if we want to call it that began with you as a, a student reporter uh at um is that fair to say is that accurate uh the first time i met jimmy johnson i was a freshman university of miami student sort of walking across uh the back part of his field to get to my temporary housing my first semester at the university of miami i was not a journalist i was not anything i was just walking across the very fringes of his field and he ran over with his very tight orange bicycle shorts and yelled at me off the field i was scared i ran away uh it seems like we're talking about me just being scared of dolphin people i think that <laughs> you guys brought me on here to do the same thing to me that shula did with my handshake where you're like hey we'll dan tell us about all the times you pissed God, yourself yeah. because we were angry at you <laughs> we'll shake your hand we'll yeah we will for that. sure but for so sure. what i wanted to ask you is that that after that moment you and jimmy and and i you know didn't realize you were getting phone calls although i'm not surprised but you also did develop a little bit of a bond i think and and what fascinates me about it dan is that you have i, I have always uh, looked at you as a guy that you know you don't like dictator coach you know you've you've always spoken out against that and and um you know you feel that I, I i think some of that's unnecessary i think sometimes you've expressed that coaching in and of itself is unnecessary to some degree or at least you've uh maybe diminished um the value of what you think a coach's role is with professional athletes and so why is it that jimmy was so intriguing to you given that i i feel like he fits in a lot of the categories of things that you aren't attracted to jimmy and i i would say would become friends later in life if i'm coming by uh back from the keys i will stop by his uh home out there and i should probably tell you that uh jimmy since leaving coaching is a different human being than he was while coaching. I don't think I would have had access to anything that resembled friendship with someone like that while he was coaching because even he, Seth, makes the sound of someone vomiting when talking about the man he had to be to push players that mm. way. Uh, what, I, what I admired about Jimmy Johnson was how, uh, how excellent what he built would be and how much his players loved him. But when you ask me, what do I admire about Jimmy Johnson? Because these people can be shades of a lot of different things. And he felt like he had to be dictator to get to that. I would say that someone with the professional pride of O.J. McDuffie 
might not need that. He got to where no. he is and could use an ally or could use a, you know, a, a, a co-worker more than a boss lording over him. But my admiration for Jimmy Johnson began no matter what kind of dictator he was because he was fighting at the University of Miami, uh, the library, the school, the administration on behalf of those black kids who were winning for all of them, winning money, winning titles and those kids, the way they talked about him, making it feel like, wait a minute, he's got our back and he understands us a little bit better than the rest. That formed an admiration for me, the way that he could connect with some of those guys in a way that, you know, he's still friends with Troy Aikman all these years later because, right. because somewhere within there, if you cared as much as he did, if you were as excellent as he did, he could extend you a respect or a courtesy that sort of thawed some of that dictator stuff. Of course, it's selfish if you're helping him that you will get a, a better behavior uh, from him. But if, if that's incongruent to you, I would understand it because he was, he was the dictator coach and I'm sure OJ could tell you some of the stories. Yeah. Yeah. We, uh, we definitely got a different view of, of Jimmy Johnson. <laughs> that's for damn, that's for damn sure. He and I definitely did not see eye to eye a lot of times in, uh, Quite honest, we still don't. So it is what it is with that. But enough of these damn coaches, man. Enough coaches. You know, we talk some coaches, some of the greats that have ever done it, man. Let's talk about my guys, the players, Dan. You know, I know you had an opportunity to cover some, some great guys over the years. And, you know, we can't talk Miami Dolphins without talking Dan Marino, of course. Like, what was your experience in covering Danny? And, uh, you know, got to be some things uh, – you know, you, you, you like some of the guys that were maybe a little bit on the edgy side or whatnot, you know, that give you a little bit more. Danny seemed more corporate. So what was it like covering him compared to some of the other guys that you know, were a little more, little, little, little more edgy? He didn't make it easy to do my <laughs> job. I would always gravitate toward the interesting guys or the weirdos, the guys who were counterculture. And he was hidden behind the veneer of whatever it is. Robo quarterback has to be be boring on purpose in front of your locker so that the questions go away and you don't make any headlines. That sort of runs counter to my job at the time, which is take someone's excellence and have them help you make it more interesting. Uh, Dan made it very difficult to get in there and find the human being in there because he didn't have any interest in helping the media do their job. He seemed bored by the entire process of getting out in front of cameras, having to do the weekly feeding of, of people that he didn't necessarily want in his locker room. He was professional about it, but I don't know that Dan ever granted us an access to the depths of his personality. We always were given something very shallow. You, you have a totally different experience with Dan Marino. You know Dan Marino much more intimately and more completely than I ever could uh, because that's just not something he was giving us in the locker room. And in the cases of the greatest of the great, whether it's Michael Jordan or Jeter or Tom Brady or any of those guys, if you're excellent enough, the mythology will build itself. You don't right. even need to contribute to it. Like if you're excellent enough, we'll be forced to tell your story, even if you're not helping us tell it. And, and Dan certainly checks that box. Yeah, no yeah. doubt about it, right? That's a great point. <laughs> so on the complete opposite end of that spectrum, let's talk about another guy and, and it's Ricky Williams, right? And so uh, look, it's very well documented that you and Ricky have a, a very unique and special friendship. 
Uh, and that was apparent from the moment he was traded here. In fact, that, and Juice, I don't even know if I have ever told you this, but we make the big trade for Ricky. Wanstead says the words that he's still eating to this day is that if Ricky does this and Ricky does that, we'll be in the Super Bowl. But um, I get a call shortly thereafter from Dan. And typically if Dan's calling our office for, for work-related things, he's going to call Harvey, not necessarily because he wanted to call Harvey, but that's Harvey's role. But Dan called me and he said, hey, I just want you to know you know, Ricky's, you're probably going to become Ricky's guy in that department because he's going to have absolutely zero in common with Harvey Green. And he, he, he usually is going to connect with the guy who's closer to his age, understands his world more and maybe likes things beyond just football. Um, so I, I remember that and it was very valuable, uh, information and it really became the case. But talk about what it was like, Dan, to have essentially one of, if not your best friend, land in the locker room that you cover daily at that time uh not necessarily daily but you know what i mean what was that like to to have him there and then uh well yeah we'll get talk about what it was like to have him there and then i kind of want to morph to the point where ricky's world certainly was turned upside down or he turned our world upside down um which also i think maybe changed or put a strain on that relationship for a little while as well super strange to have him traded to the dolphins because i met him while writing a magazine piece when he was at the university of texas and instantly connected with him for a number of different reasons but chief among them right was the following because he's talked more about this recently on our show but he describes himself for example and i can't imagine oj for example describing him the way uh, describing himself the way ricky describes being in the ravens locker room where he says that he was a rabbit among wolves or a mm. bit of a sensitive artist among killers among uh, the ravens guys who were I mean, one of them was involved in a murder trial. Right. Like you're talking about right, right. Uh, bad men filled with menace who played football very well. For He says, for example, so sensitive that he says when looking across the landscape of football, a guy he's seen recently that sort of reminds him of him in sensitivities, he points to Jonathan Martin, of all people, wow, uh, saying, wow. saying, like, I didn't belong in that world. I was excellent enough to survive in that world, but it just wasn't for me. So I connected right there with him. Like, he wanted a more authentic, vulnerable connection with people. And, OJ, you could speak to this. Yeah. The locker room, especially at that time, can be unfriendly in that way or we don't care about your feelings like tape them up take a shot right, we don't right, care about your right. feelings and and ricky's wandering around why doesn't anybody care about my feelings i want my feelings <laughs> cared about and right. uh and so that was the that was the connection point it was strange because i was writing a book with him in new orleans he gets hurt and then he gets traded to miami and it's just weird, right? I remember Wanstead asked me like a week before they were trading for him. Wanstead asked me a bunch of questions about him. And I thought it was strange. Wanstead had never asked me about anybody. And yeah. I didn't put two and two together that they were in, in about to trade for him. But it also allowed me, uh, while he was here, I believe, to cover an athlete in this town better than I've ever covered an athlete in this town because I had genuine access and trust from somebody whose story I found genuinely compelling because he was willing to share vulnerabilities 
while being wrapped in all that muscled armor that gave him, you know, stardom and intrigue and flashbulb fame in the in the city where he played in professionally that made him happiest. And he was most himself. So it was a lot of fun to cover him while he was here, right up until it wasn't. <laughs> you know, and yeah. I, man, I give I give him one second. Which I give him credit for. And people give me shit all the time. I think Ricky's the best running back the Dolphins have ever had in the history of the organization. And, you know, they got, you know, they want to go back to the seventies and Zonka and, and kick and Merck and those guys. But when have we ever had a running back that did every single thing that Ricky could do with speed and power and smarts and block and catch and, and do all the things that he did and a hell of a teammate on top of that. I mean, this dude was unbelievable here. A hell of a teammate right up until he wasn't right. Really right wasn't. up until, because you know, the culture, you know, the culture of, that sport where the thing that you, I don't know if it's the thing you guys respect most, but it's really high up there. Do you show up and can I count on right. you to be by my side? You also yeah. know this though, OJ, the way that he was used the last couple of years would make anybody in the world quit. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So, so talk about that though, Dan, because uh, you know, we have, there's a little bit of a running joke here in the fish tank uh, where, and I walked myself. No joke, into it. Seth is no joke. <laughs> Well, Ricky and I had it. So I left in like <laughs> June of uh, June, July of 2004. And I went and told the guys, different guys that I was closest to that I was leaving. And when I sat down with Ricky, he asked me why. Well, first of all, he was disappointed. He said, I'm happy for you. I'm disappointed for me. But tell me why. And, and I told him, Dan, and so you, you've never heard this story. But I, I said, look, all I ever want to do my entire life was work for this organization. Since I was a little kid, I would sit in the stands and I would see people. And how yeah. did they get? It's all I ever wanted to do. And I did it. And I've loved it. And I would never trade it, ever, ever, ever trade it. But I feel like I've done what I can do and I'm ready to do something else. And he looked at me. And when I told him this story when he was in the fish tank, he just started laughing. And I said, do you remember? He goes, of course I remember. And he looked at me and like he got it, Dan. He really heard what I had to say. So now everybody listens to this show and OJ blame me for making Ricky retire, which we know there's other factors, but apparently I get to, you know, he, he said this was one of them. So, so that's the running joke that OJ says is not a joke, mm -mm. but clearly if he was talking to me about things and I was sitting at lunch when he called me for Travis Miner's phone number, because well, I didn't realize he was then calling Travis to tell him to get ready, you know, and then the next day he called me for Dave Wanstead's phone number and then shit got a little <laughs> interesting. But you and Ricky were clearly having conversations about his football mortality and and where his head was at. And you essentially broke the news. And that did put a strain on your relationship. Well, we can talk about all of that. Uh, I found fascinating that, I don't know, the last three years of Ricky's career, when he's doing a good deal of conquering, he's got a restlessness about... Why am I still doing this? And it doesn't have to do with physical pain or any of that stuff. It's that he had from the moment in his junior year of college where he was going to be a first round pick. He was going to go pro. He was going to get millions of dollars. He's in the press conference room walking to the microphone to announce he's turning pro early. And he says, you know what? I really love college football. I've only wanted to be a college football player. And he gets up there and changes his mind. He says, I'm coming back for my senior year. And if he had to do it over again, I'm not sure he wouldn't have quit right after that season just because wow. uh, he was playing football because it was the expectations of others. He was big and he was black and he was fast and just societal imprinting is like, 
this is what you have to do. This is where the goals are, the, the riches, the fame. This is what everyone aspires to. But he didn't really aspire to it. Like, he just wanted to be great at college. And so the last three years, we're having conversations where he's wrestling this alligator of, why am I not happier when everyone says I should be happier because I'm getting all the things that everyone associates with happiness in this world. And when he called me to finally tell me that he was leaving or that he had told Wanstead that he was leaving, I've got to be one of the few people whose reaction was, and it was a very loving, genuine, authentic reaction. Good for you, man. Like, good for you for choosing you and something different that is hard to, that is really hard to choose if this is not the thing it was for you. But it really is hard to get your head around the idea that he could be that excellent without it feeling like it's <laughs> what he was meant to do. And, yeah. and by, by the end of it, you know, he got real genuine relief from, from escaping it, from, from being able to, I, I think he told me recently, that he had like a spiritual epiphany the moment that he called his doctor and his doctor said you failed a, a drug test and his response because he always said look i didn't quit football because i failed the drug test i failed the drug test because i wanted to quit football mm -hmm. and he felt as soon as he hung yeah. up the phone one of these life experience things where you see your whole life flash in front of your eyes and felt total freedom like just like I can go be ha can go be happy now. And the thing that put the strain on the relationship at the time is that I had to choose, you know, I was on television for several days with TV trucks on my lawn, being the only one sort of talking to him as he's in Japan and with Lenny Kravitz backstage, sort of being a publicist for him, being a, you know, I'm getting angry on television on ESPN saying, look, this is an artist in, in confined to an, army's rigidity this is a person who wants to get on with his life and do bigger things and then you know there was also the the revelation that he had failed the drug test i didn't want to look like i was you know a propagandist i'm a journalist and so i had right. to make choices between my integrity and my loyalty uh and i'm you know i'm glad uh that the things happened and that we have come together again. And I love the dude. Like I, I can say that genuinely, not like flippantly. That's a, that's a man. That's a human being that I love beyond admiring and respect him. I love him. And so I'm happy that we've been able to overcome, you know, me having to do my job around some of the, some of the shit that came with, uh, you know, I hated to see people throw rocks and garbage at a guy who, now all these years later we can be like oh he was kind of on the right side of history yep. he was kind of <laughs> yeah. he was kind of like i mean ricky says ricky says if i had played 10 or 15 years later i'd be a hero on both right. the mental illness stuff and the marijuana stuff like i'd right. be a i'd be a goddamn hero across the entire sport as counterculture independent thinker and it you know might have kept him there longer if the experience could have been could have felt more like that as opposed to people perpetually hitting with hitting him with why are you so strange yeah i think before I, his time for sure. absolutely he was do you think dan and you said you didn't want to be a propagandist do you think that you said the strain that ricky's expectation were those his expectations that he kind of wanted that he want you said you, you you were serving almost like a publicist but that wasn't your role did he kind of want the publicist did he or, or no i i just don't think that he cared and would have any reason to care about journalism's rules or what my right. job was so care like, about I a was, lot of rules 
All right. And I was just writing these very rich stories that got people to know him and like him. But all of that went up in literal smoke the yeah. moment the marijuana <laughs> stuff happened. Like everybody just sort of forgot, oh, never mind about this guy being an eccentric and interesting iconoclast. Now, because, you know, he smokes a plant, he's, you know, he's demonized in a way that, I mean, come yeah, on. Exactly right. Exactly right. Hey, come on, Israel. You're right, man. Oh man, Ricky, man, that's my dude, man. That's my dude. I'm missing that. Guy. Well, he got he gets a lot of admiration from a lot of people because you can never question the work, right? It's right. not like he, right. whatever it is. He he left at the end, but I got to imagine a whole lot of people in that locker room were like, "Of course he left. You're carrying. You're making him carry the ball 400 times a season." Like, yeah. I mean, on top of everything else, like you know how hard it is to do that particular job if your heart's not in it. Like if right. you're already wondering about what am I doing here? Well, typically you can't, right? I mean, that's we all say that, Juice. You know, guys say that once your heart's out of it, you can't play that game any longer so the fact that he did and you said that earlier and it's pretty profound the fact that his heart wasn't in it and and he he was the best in the league for multiple no years no is, is well but he put in the work right there would have been no evidence did. no yeah. nobody yeah. in that locker room would have said well his heart's not in it because in practice he's sprinting 100 yards when he doesn't have to just for no good reason just because he likes to run you know, and he told me that. I remember when yeah. he first came back. It was the first time people publicly. He had a charity event, and I forget what hotel he was at. I went upstairs, and we were we were out on a balcony, kind of overlooking the city. And he was saying the thing that bothered him the most was not that people were mad that he left or whatever, is that if anybody who questioned his work ethic and how hard and he's like, I was a really good football player, and like I worked really hard at this game, and that upset him that that was questioned. There were any number of misrepresentations of him. He was he was simply excellent at what he did, and some of his personality eccentricities probably didn't fit in what I describe as a military school for millionaires. <laughs> that's a good, yeah, no that's a doubt. good description. That's a hell of a description. Yeah, Ricky, man, he I mean, everything about him, man, was was special. I mean, I mean, we talked to so many people about not just his work ethic, but how smart he was. You know, you don't, you only got to tell himself one time. Sometimes he didn't have a notebook, Big Seth, right? And he just memorized everything that was needed and so talked about. He never about had any mental busts and never took never a had note. any mental busts, man. And that's uh, so everybody should have been on his uh, same script. You know what I mean? But you, but you know how conditional that stuff can be, right? Like he, yeah, for sure. he, he went, uh, when he was serving dolphin fans with his excellence, they loved him and fans can be selfish. And when you're not serving them with your excellence and you take away their feel good, uh, you might get hit with a furnace blast of hostility. Well, let's talk about a couple other players, including Ricky. You know, you covered some guys in that locker room, and I know some some of your favorites had to be in that locker room. I know I wasn't one of them. I get it. I understand that. <laughs> That's you know? not actually <laughs> true. That's not actually true, OJ. I, it you uh you wouldn't give up the good quotes, and you and I didn't have that kind of relationship. But you were absolutely one of my favorite players. I could uh, like I didn't have the relationship with you that I had with Trace or Jason Taylor or Zach Thomas, but those guys we're more interested in cultivating relationships with media members and being seen. You were there to catch your passes and be great. And you didn't, I mean, I don't know that you had a lot of use for, for any of us. Like we weren't, we weren't helping matters any by being there. Yeah, you weren't hurting anything either, man. You know, I just, um, you know, but there had to be a couple other guys. I mean, who else did you enjoy covering in there, you know, the most and, and, and why you talk about, we already talked about Ricky, you know, a little bit there about myself. You said Zach and JT, Trace. What about who are those guys? 
Well, Trace ended up becoming my agent uh, later in life, and I always loved the conversations with him that were bigger than football. Zach, uh, I love talking to Zach just because uh, he he was so he was so good about telling you about at that time what was too often heartbreak, like again and again heartbreak. Like when I think of the lasting images, I'm not even kidding about this, OJ. When I think of the lasting images of hall of famer jason taylor's career it's him in front of his locker bent over after another loss with the towel over his head between 10 and 15 minutes of just sitting there despondent everything in his energy left on the field and to be that excellent and lose again and again and again. And for those three guys, Trace and Zach and Jason, to always stand at their lockers and take the questions, no matter how emotional, no matter how heartbreaking the loss is, uh, they made my job very easy because they, they always had something interesting to say. And it was usually articulated in a way that could connect with fans because you could feel how much they cared. You could feel... Uh, you could feel the heartbreak and the, that they hurt as much as the people who were going home sad on the on the days that they lost. And they were just insightful human beings who would talk honestly about like the good stuff, the stuff that the roots that get explored when you guys are introspective and say, well, how did I get here? What were the things in my life that uh, represent the roots of imprinting me so that I could be as great as I am, top 1% of the top 1% in a place where, you know, a whole lot of desperate people are fighting for money. Uh, if I, Because <laughs> the way, I don't need to explain this to you, the way that you guys earned a living, OJ, and earn a living in football is totally insane. Fighting other people violently for money is an insane sanity i would not i am i am not strong enough to make my career that way like i am not strong enough of will of imprinting of anything to make my career fighting another desperate man for money who also wants money because he also wants to feed his family no thank you i will will write about it i will talk about it i will not endure the conflict and uh and have the strength required to do it I, if the guy looks like Daryl Gardner or Jason Taylor or Trace Armstrong, maybe, but if it's Stu Gatz, right? If it's Mike Ryan, if you guys have to square off <laughs> and, and have to fight for money, then, you know, maybe you've got a better shot. Oh, but this is a different game, right? Because I actually <laughs> used to, I, I actually used to be somebody dumbly who fought and my career ended in Coconut Grove at the tavern. The one time I looked across from a guy, uh, I was in a bar fight. My brother was there and I'm squared up on him. And at the time I hadn't been any kind of scared of fighting. And I was looking at this guy and I recognized in his eyes, oh, he's not scared either. And that's when I realized <laughs> I was the scared you're, one. You're and, and, and I ended up with my shirt over my head and a shoe lost in the street, a car honking because I'd had that happen to me and my ear bleeding. And that ended my fighting career forevermore. So I, the world that OJ and them are in fighting for money is much different than the world I am in when I was having my fights. Right. Cause in their world, after all that happens, then you have to go sit in a room full of your peers and watch that on film and have the coach tell you that you just got your ass kicked and how you got to improve it and then you got to go back and do that fight again i do not believe that the people listening to this understand as we have these mental health conversations in sports how this particular sport would be a challenge to the mental health of any human being who played it because of the pressures and the violence and the discipline and the crazy 
required to, you know, to, to be better than the guy trying to prevent OJ from getting the hundred catches uh, when he's just as desperate as you. And the difference between you succeeding and him succeeding is a step is, you know, is whether you tweaked your ankle that, that week in practice. Like I, I, the nature of that sport, I believe uh, could test the mental health of even the strongest of mine. And it does. And it does. Yeah. That's, that's a fair point. Well, Dan, you've been incredibly gracious with your time, and I know uh, we we uh, promised you a certain time, but if I could ask one last question, I'm going to squeeze two into one here um, and before we get you out of here. Uh, we've talked a lot about, well, all about your, your coverage of the Miami Dolphins, but there was a shift, and I remember very vividly, it's weird how our worlds all intertwine, but again, 2004, I told you I left the team, and I was working for Jason, and I was sharing an office with Ralph Stringer, who at that point in time, 790, right, was, was launching this new sports. They were going all sports format, and they just landed the big fish, not the whale, not the largemouth bass, but the big fish <laughs> for their afternoon mm-hmm. drive and Dan Lebetard. Ralph was negotiating the Joe Rose for the morning show. They wanted Dan Marino to be this Monday, right, every Monday as a guest, and they were looking for a midday host, and I recommend my partner here, O.J. McDuffie. And, and that was this whole transition in your professional career. And it's crazy as we were talking about before the show, where you're at now, walk us through why you made the transition from writing to speaking, uh, right. From writing about it to talking about it. And I know this is a lot to try and squeeze in in one time, but you went through this incredible journey. I, I forget sometimes when I read people wax poetically about your time at ESPN and everything else, um, just, you know, iconic in the business and i know that might embarrass you but i i said it and i'm not taking it back uh but and then what you've done now where you've created this new thing and what metal arc is so if you can kind of sum all that up and that way i turn the timer over to you uh and uh and we can go from there well it's a lot of ground to cover and i hope i don't I bore you with this but writing is very lonely it is not a shared experience it is very fulfilling it's the most fulfilling work i do i believe it's the best it's what i'm best at is really writing good at it but it's but it's really hard it's a bit of suffering and the the best thing about writing is having written it's being done with it but it's very lonely and so when i went to go do pardon the interruption um and keep in mind at this point i i get to whatever 29 years old i'm on sports reporters and i'm looking around and this is supposed to be the top of the profession and i'm in the new york times square espn zone and Bob Ryan's got bad breath and the table that's in front of me is stained from 25 years of coffee stains. And I'm in literally a New York Times Square bar where the chairs are up on the tables and the whole place smells like people have been pissing and throwing up. 2000 people were pissing and throwing up the day before. And I'm looking around. I'm like, okay, this is the top. This is the best of what I can do. And then I walk into PTI though. And what they had going on behind the scenes with, it wasn't just Wilbon and Kornheiser. It was the team of producers behind them. And I'm like, oh, I want this. This is shared. This is communal. This is, Mm. this is not lonely. This is laughter. This is an environment. This is what I want. This is what success looks like to me. Now that I've looked back at what I thought was success, and it wasn't quite success. And so I just transitioned into something that was more shared instead of lonely. It's, I'm guessing, I, I don't want to assume this about OJ, but if you ask him what he misses, the Gladiator Sundays are fun, but it's the camaraderie of the shared experience. You will never know a bond like working with those people on that thing and winning with them or 
laughing in a locker room or yelling at the reporter who walks into a losing <laughs> locker room and he's laughing like you will never know what it's like i don't know oj you can answer better than i fighting with those dudes those are friendships that end up lasting a lifetime because you don't go through those experiences with anybody else in life not your wife not your kids like even when your kids are born you might not be physically jumping up and down in the delivery room the way that you would jump into a teammate's arm because you've perfectly executed this thing that you've been practicing for so long, just get 16 chances at it a year. Um, it's just a different experience. I would guess, I, I, sh I should ask you instead yeah. of guessing, you're right here, that that's yeah. what you would miss the most. Absolutely, absolutely. There's nothing like it. And it's one thing we can't uh, replicate. And that's one. Of, that's the first thing we have guys in here talk about, man. They miss that locker room, bro. And those, and the two fun days in football, Sundays and paydays, you know, those are, that's it. That's it, bro. And that's, it's, it's very common. And it's a lonely feeling afterwards, man. You talk about, you know, riding is lonely, but when you're out of the league, that, that's incredibly lonely, you know? Oh my God. When you, you know, get your identity, your yeah. self-worth, the thing you've been working for, like, I can't even imagine. Hell, OJ, by the time your career was wrapping up, whatever age you were, is when I was making a transition into learning enough about myself as an adult to be like, wait, I don't want the thing I always wanted. I want right. this new thing. Like you, to have to have your I, I've talked to Robert Smith about this. He was uniquely qualified to de or he thought he was uniquely qualified to deal with retirement. And then he starts waking up in retirement and drinking so much in the morning that he's throwing up in a bucket because he wasn't in any way equipped for retirement because nobody in that sport is equipped for retirement to have the things that you've worked for done at 35. And now you're basically grieving and mourning some form of and forgive the indelicacy of this didn't you used to be oj mcduffie didn't you used to like is that oj mcduffie like that that kind of mortality it's it's like speeding up whatever mortality a human being feels at 50 60 70 years old an athlete starts feeling it in his 30s and then has to get on with the rest of his life it's a it's a hugely difficult transition and lonely transition no matter how much love you have in your life, because none of the people who love you can possibly understand that. Man, I should be talking to you on a bi-weekly basis, man, instead of my psychologist, man. You know that I mean? shit's hard, OJ. And you guys, you guys are so tough and stuff that you don't like talking about it. And you don't like, you got to be tough and you can't be vulnerable. You can't share it with anybody. That shit is hard. Like I... I, you know, I admire the toughness that it takes to do what you guys did. And I admire the toughness that it takes to transition after it because, uh, it is very, is very difficult. Yeah. yeah. I'm sorry. I hope I didn't make you sad. I hope I didn't, well, I didn't, I didn't get too up in there. Yeah. I'm going to have to call my guy. I'm going to talk, I'm gonna have to call my guy <laughs> now. He's on speed dial. So I, <laughs> but man, you're so right though. Spot on right there, Dan, man. And yeah, I know we have to let you go here soon, man, but you definitely, um, it's, it's, it's refreshing to hear guys like yourself and other guys that understand, you know, cause you do, you know, the guys, you talk to the guys and you know, the guys and how they feel and what their minds are going through and bodies are going through. But Man, that sense of loss, you know, not on the field, just in general, you know, these guys, myself, just feel lost, you know, and they have to recreate themselves. Some guys have done a great job at it, but most have not. Oh, but it's grief. It's real grief yeah. and you need coping tools and coming from an environment that, especially during your time, it's easier now, OJ, but 
everyone was dissuading you from anything that resembled vulnerability because that's weakness. That's, I mean, I, I don't want to paint everybody with the caveman brush, but that the military school for the millionaires is not necessarily best equipped to help some people with the difficult things that the mind has to go through. You can get in the training room and you can get wrapped for an ankle or you can get a shot. The mind, like that shit is, is hard. And I don't think that that environment is particularly equipped to handle how hard it is, at least in part, because all they're trying to do is get you back on the field. Just get back on the field so we could keep making those dollars. And if you don't make them for us, you will be disposable and we will find someone else whose mind doesn't sound weak or who isn't giving voice to I'm needy or whatever the things are that come with the stigmas of expressing your feelings. Yeah. And I'd like to think that, right, some of that's being recognized now and there's some strides being made. And I don't know, Juice, you could speak to this more than I can. And maybe that's happening more for former players than it is for active players. Um, and, and, and to Dan's point, I don't know, maybe those aren't conversations that um, that are encouraged for current, for active players, but as a former player juice and, and, you know, do you feel like there are more resources now than maybe there were when you first retired? Oh, absolutely. You know, I, there's, there's, there've been resources, but there are a lot more now, but the thing is, and Dan said it best is, you know, how many guys are willing to to accept the help or reach out and let somebody know that, you know, they need the help. Or, or the yeah. Ask, asking for the help or even trusting the doctors, Seth, uh, yeah. even, yeah. even trusting, just simply trusting the doctors with, you know, and I've talked to a lot of athletes recently about this, Man, if I go tell a doctor what I'm really feeling, I don't know that it'll be held, that it won't be held against me, that he won't tell right. coach, that he won't, like, I don't know that these people are on my side, not for real, like as a human being. I know they are as a player, as a producer, but not as a human being, not always. I, I shouldn't paint with a broad brush there. But you're saying that's the fear. You're not yeah. saying that's the guarantee, but I'm saying that it's hard, no matter how much better they get at it, it's hard for this relationship to be the kind of trusting relationship because yeah. of the imbalances, because everything in the system is pressurized, the media, the fans, your teammates, the coach, to just get you back on the field, just shut up and score touchdowns just get out there and don't cause problems and combined with man oj mcduffie's not going to ask anybody for help like oj right. like, well, self-sufficient all his life what you know he's not going to go he's not going to go ask for help unless it's dire yeah yeah, yeah. and I, I he's got an team. unbelievable pain threshold right so if his physical pain threshold is there then so is his mental pain threshold i can overcome anything i'm not weak i didn't get here being weak i didn't get here with people looking at me and thinking that my vulnerability is weakness i can't show anybody like i imagine with oj when he says hey i, I was a fake tough guy or whatever like that applies everywhere right like you got to put on the bravado and the shield so that so that people don't hurt you that's right man it's it's yeah, that's right. And some guys, man, some guys did it better than others, man. Just, you know, and, and honestly, I wish I I wish I'd have reached out for help a lot sooner in my life than I did, man. You know, now I'm now I'm getting to a better place. 
mentally uh, physically i'm always going to be the same beat up old dude but mentally it's getting a lot better that's for sure and i think that's why these conversations are important whether it's the three of us whether it's uh, you know it's 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 talking about it right dan I, you know and that certainly well, you can't be well alone with do. it you can't be alone with yeah. it like other people can help you carry the it's the only way there is a certain embedded loneliness in it because nobody could actually know what it took to be oj maybe some comrades could have an idea, but nobody in his daily life who's not a football player right. could possibly understand the, the ring of fire that he was running through for 20 years, or more than 20 years. Uh, they simply can't understand what it is to get to be that great or to lose it, to lose your identity from within it, uh, and then to step off of the big gladiator stage and look around and be like, all right, well, who's with me now? Now that the uniform's off and it's just me you know, spent physically giving everything to this game. Who's with me now? Uh, I I hope that more and more people talk about it openly because there's great healing in not being alone with it. That's And that was my point. I, I heard JT say it to a group of kids here recently where he said the things that made me really good at work aren't, weren't necessarily the things that are going to make me really good in my personal life, in my marriage, in my, you know, fatherhood and, and all of those elements. And but but he was able to to say that to a group of young people. And so I think the more these conversations are had, whether it's a conversation like this, whether it's a superstar athlete saying that to a group of young athletes, maybe it gets you a little bit closer, maybe closer. Maybe it destigmatizes uh, talking about it to some degree. Um, you know, that that would be the hope. I, I know you're tight on time. We've gone over our time. I don't, fortunately, we have no formatting in podcasting, but I do in keeping my guests happy. So um, this only means we'll just put in a request now with Mike Ryan, and in another year or so, we'll get you back in the tank. No, we can do it again. I'm sorry <laughs> if it was cut short. I, I'm, it would be a pleasure to talk to you don't guys. Don't be you sorry. Let me I'm not putting it on. It no, you let me know, you, you let me know when it is that you want to talk again. We can talk again. I greatly appreciate it. And, uh, and Dan, just, you know, spending some time with this man, it was, as I said, prepping for this was a lot of fun reliving some of these moments that we had and, uh, you know, beyond excellence here in the tank, uh, which is what you do, but, but That's exactly what he us. does, man. Excellent stuff, man. And Dan, we appreciate you diving in, man. Uh, thank you for honoring me with your platform guys. I'm a big fan of both of you. So thank you for that. <laughs> You're now diving into the fish tank. Sitting down with Seth living, OJ, Juice Man, this is strictly for them true fans, yeah. golf fans, number one. one, of course y'all, this ain't no ordinary sports talk, dive up in that fish tank, go get your aqua orange gear, it's time to dive up in that fish tank, it's only legendary talking when you dive up in that fish tank, rocking with OJ and Seth when we dive up in that fish tank, Okay, this one for them diehards Celebrate big or cry hard Leave it all on the field, we gon' try hard Old school, a new school, mix it in Feeling like we up close when we listening Dolphins tales, in Miami is the deep end We vibing with our favorite players, no secret We get with Seth and McDuffie 
Bringing up stories we never heard to the public. Bet we love it. Dolphin fans never budget. We loyal to the team, whether happy or we upset. We be like, what's next? Don't switch the subject. You know it's all about them fans. And if you ready for that water, time to dive in. Don't switch the subject. You know it's all about them fans. And if you down with Dolphins Nation, time to dive in. Don't switch the subject. You know it's all about them fans. You looking at that fish tank, it's time to dive in. Don't be able to add a token, but the devil in the kitchen.